Thank you. Dr. Carroll, it's really a privilege to have you with us here today. I consider myself privileged to be able to hear you share some of your story with us. Um, so to kind of continue the conversation that you started, I'd love to kind of welcome y'all into that, what he's already started for us. I'd love to hear if there were any particular parts of the lecture that he gave and his own experiences that kind of resonate with your own experiences in the church and in the academy. Whoever wants to go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I resonate with pretty almost everything, if not everything, um, that he said. But probably my first experience where I realized as a, as a Cuban Latino, my background um, was really shaping uh, things I was seeing in the text. I wasn't seeing in, in commentaries, so I focus on, on Paul's letters. Uh, wrote a dissertation that was later published um, on the theme of inheritance. And as a Cuban, uh, my family came from right, Cuba because of communism. We lost our, our land. Everything that we had, all of our stuff was gone. Uh, and we came here with, I mean, almost pretty much nothing, uh, just to close, close on our back. Um, so I began reading through Paul's letters, and I was prepping for seminars on Galatians and, and Romans, and um, I kept coming across, especially in chapter 3 and chapter 4, uh, chapter 3 of Galatians and 4 of Romans, the theme of, of inheritance. And all the commentators, they kind of, they nodded, they tipped their hat to the fact, inheritance, yeah, it's, it's the land, you know, it's this physical stuff promised to Abraham uh, and his seed. But then it was like they would pivot. Um, and all of a sudden, the land, the inheritance became spiritual life in Christ. It, it became some kind of spiritual form of salvation or blessing. And I'm thinking, where did that come from, right? Uh, coming from a family who, who lost everything, who lost land. Like, land matters. Stuff matters. Um, spiritualizing physical promises uh, to someone who's Latino or Cuban, that's, that's tough to do. But... I saw that in most of the, in fact, all the commentaries I encountered at the time, um, they just spiritualized it away as something other than um, the land, even though they would tip their hat to the fact that it was the land, but obviously it's not for Paul for some reason, even though he never says it's not. Um, so what I argued is no, when Paul uses the theme of inheritance, he expects us to understand what resonates with his audience that this is the land, the physical stuff promised to Abraham that will one day be renewed, reconstituted, and given to God's people, um, those who are in Christ. Um, so that's probably one time. Um, the first time, actually, there have been several times after that without really, I mean, being a Cuban from that background, really, I just, I couldn't let that go. Yeah. My background, my experience wouldn't let me just kind of let those commentators off the hook. So I wrote a dis dissertation about it. Um, so you can read more about it there. Yeah. Uh, I'll just say two quick things. Um, I think the, the first point, well, there's many points where I said, oh, wow, that's that is very consistent with what, you know, I've I felt at times. But uh, e even just the idea of the church being the primary context, I think that's so important. Um, I mean, and even for myself, as I'm doing um, work related to m making our campus look more like the kingdom of heaven, and we're trying to uh, have faculty, uh, potential faculty apply to positions that are open, because that's how we do it. We just help season the pot of, um, of applicants. And, but the reality is, uh, and amongst African Americans, the, the pulpit is superior to the lectern. 
And so uh, people have arrived if they're the pastor, the senior pastor at a church. And so that's, that's one just indicator of the fact that the church is primary in that, in that reality. And then the second thing is, is, more, is more abiding and, and personal. Uh, you mentioned that you, had to, you, you felt that you had to perhaps write a book on a commentary on Amos. <clears throat> my, my own dissertation, much like yours, Dr. Echevarria, really uh, was one that I wrote because of, of a burden. Uh, it was a, it's a, a historical analysis of theological method in black liberation theology. And so just uh, doing some analysis on the methodologies used to produce the, by, you know, uh, those, those theologies by, the, by certain figures. Mm-hmm. Not that I agree with all of them, but just trying to figure out how, uh, why, and how this theology emerged as it did. Mm-hmm. And so uh, although that's you know, pretty far down the path, being considered by Yale University Press, I feel like I had to say yes to a, you know, write a book on eschatology. Not necessarily because I wanted to, but I felt like I had to, uh, because if I write a you know book on eschatology, that's like, you know 115,000 words, then I feel like I, I could be accepted in more places, and so uh, it wouldn't matter that you know uh, who publishes the dissertation. It wouldn't matter that you know where your degree is from, but if if that is uh, out there, then I feel like I belong. So I, I feel like I'm. I mean, I I'm going to learn a ton writing it. I'm excited for the study. I really am. But there's times where I have to get myself excited about it. Mm-hmm. Um, because really, I, I accepted it because I felt like I had to do it to prove my street cred in the guild. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Carroll, you and I uh, spoke yesterday about uh, what drove me into the study of Amos personally, uh, and none of you were there, so I'll, I'll include you in the conversation as well. Uh, but I was pastoring. I was pastoring in Baltimore, and uh, during the the uh, the riots and and all of that that was going on, Freddie Gray and and so on, uh, I found myself as a pastor kind of grasping, you know, what what do I say as a pastor? What do I do as a pastor? Does God have anything to say about about this? You know, does God have anything to say to us right here? You know, in this spot, in this place, in this time. And uh, I, I, was, I was concerned as I was going through various you know, searches, research, and so on, um, that there, there weren't as many voices as I thought there would be. Uh, when I went into the scriptures, however, I found uh, one like Amos and several others. Uh, once, you, once you put on the lenses, you see, every, you, you see it all over the place. Uh, but I started to recognize that the Bible does talk about this. The Bible, you know, God absolutely has something to say uh, about structural injustices, about personal injustices, and, and so on. God is a God of justice. Uh, I saw even that, that justice is at the heart of the gospel, that, the, that, that Christ's death on the cross satisfies God's just demands. It's an act of justice uh, 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 for the Lord. Um, and so once I started recognizing all of those things, uh, there was a confidence that I had that, that God uh, is our God <laughs> and that the Bible is our Bible, uh, that I don't have to borrow it from somebody, you know, in a different context, in a different, even in a different time, you know, uh, or a different geographic location. But, but God speaks to me 
and he speaks to us, and we're able to apply the scriptures uh, personally uh, to the people uh, and to the church you know, that was there in our context. So uh, hearing you talk about Ruth and talk about Abraham and, and Daniel, what I hear you know, from you is, is you know, really echoing what I was doing as a pastor, uh, because as I was approaching the scriptures, that's what I was thinking. You know, where are we in here? You know, and what is God saying to us you know, as a people here today? No, that, that's fantastic. And I think just hearing your kind of collective commitment to like living the reality of your experiences and not forsaking that in the way that you're engaging in your scholarship and for your people, like it's really encouraging, but also acknowledging that in this group, we're not talking about the exact same tradition. We're talking about the exact same group. I'd love it if we could hear a little bit more from you, Dr. Strickland, Professor Locke about, so Dr. Carroll has given us some distinctives of the way that his Latino, Latina background speaks into the way that he reads the text, specifically with migrants and an awareness of the stranger. Would love to hear if you have a couple of points from the African-American tradition that kind of impacts the way that you read the text. Definitely. Um, I think the first thing is uh, what, if you go into many um, African-American environments, you talk about big God, you know, a big God, a God, which, and by that, it's a God who's sovereign. It's a God who is in control of a, a, a situation, even when it seems out of control. Um, you know, if, if you read a lot of the, the, the narratives in the theological treaties and the um, uh, just sort of correspondence of, you know, or even transcripts of slaves, you know, from slaves and then early Christians or people who were in the antebellum period, um, a lot of them talk about a God who is, you know, is still ruling and reigning. They don't use that language, but that's what they're getting at. There's a, there's a God who is good. There's a God who's at work, and that God will keep them. And upon the uh, you know, emancipation, I mean, I was reading uh, Hosea Eaton's uh, address on Thanksgiving talking about how they were uh, just, uh, well, not Hosea Eaton. There's, um, um, which one was this? Anyway, I'm just, I've been just immersing myself in a reader right now, yeah. so I'm just swimming in uh, uh, you know, pre-emancipation African-American Christian literature right now. But anyway... Um, Leonard Black, actually, he was uh, doing a, a, a speech at, on the, um, the emancipation in New York State. And he was talking about the, just the horrendous realities of slavery. But then he was saying, but there's a God who is still at work. But then that God brought us out of this as well. So God kept and then God, you know, delivered. And so uh, I'd also say that... Um, in addition to this sort of big God reality, there is a, uh, a very important reality that we have to understand that came out of uh, the lion's share of the African-American Christian tradition uh, being rooted in just uh, an oral tradition. It was illegal for African-Americans to uh, read on the whole uh, during, you know, when, when a large percentage of African-Americans came to Christ, which was during the Great Awakenings. And so uh, it wasn't um, a, a bookish tradition. It was one that was very oral. So the stories in the Old Testament became sort of not a canon within a canon, but just very central because you can just tell those stories. You can rehearse the way that God was interacting with his people and his creation, even as you're in the sort of rigors of uh, servitude. And so, uh, and in particular, if you look at uh, the story of the Exodus and the role that it plays in how it's situated in the African-American Christian tradition, it becomes sort of like a hermeneutical lens to understand the reality of God interacting with his people. And so that's where, you know, uh, folks would say, well, there's a God who kept us and there's a God who delivered us. And that God who delivered in the Exodus is, is the same God who's at work today. Uh, he still desires for people to be treated rightly. 
Um, and so uh, God gets credit for that. And so and then I'd also say just really, very quickly, um, there's this, uh, like I would say theological ethics. And I say that that way and for a reason because oftentimes, I mean, even in our institution, we have a theology faculty and then we have an ethics faculty. But in the African-American Christian tradition, uh, those two things cannot be mutually exclusive. Um, I think you guys might have heard that there's uh, ascending and descending theologies, or theology from above and theologies from below. Uh, the African-American uh, tradition is one from below. In that, uh, it's looking at the issues of the day and then sort of bringing those things to the throne of God. Uh, bringing, the, bringing those things to Scripture, bringing those, those things to God in prayer. So putting those circumstances under the Lordship of Christ. And uh, as, a, as opposed, or in, not as opposed to, but in contrast to uh, those who are looking at certain locations or loci in sort of a systematic theological you know, framework that came out of the Reformation, uh, like you know, Melanchthon had his, his locations of theology, and those have basically emerged into the major categories that we have in a systematic theology textbook. Who is Christ? What is salvation? Who, you know, what is the church? And these sorts of things. So there are questions that are descending or theology from above because we're talking about more uh, biblical theological realities and then at the end applying them to life as opposed to looking around at what's going on and then sort of allowing that to ascend to you know, where the Lord is putting that under his lordship. Both are fine, but both have tendencies. Sometimes the tendency of a theology from below is to, you know, stay down here in the more sociological historical realities, as you're talking about, Dr. Carroll. But then sometimes it just fails to get up to the sort of let's place it under Christ's lordship reality. And then uh, by contrast, you have systematic theologians, you know, which this is my own field, so I can pick on us a little bit. Sometimes we're so uh, systematic in our formulation of doctrine that we rarely get to the place where we're integrating it to real life. And so it's just a matter of, I mean, so I love being in conversation with both. I think I'm better for having been in conversation with both because I can't, I can't get away with being sloppy uh, exegetically or systematically from my, from my, from on the one hand, and I can't you know, get away with not having the theology touch the ground on the other. And exactly. So big God theology, I would say, uh, theological ethics and how it's necessarily theological and how those two are in so interwoven. Um, and then also, what's the other thing I said? Sort of an oral, oral sort of yeah. tradition. No, that's fantastic. And this is such a, a rich kind of conversation that we're having. But I think we all know that sometimes when we bring up contextual interpretation, people bristle a little bit, get a little bit uncomfortable with what we're doing as if this is somehow challenging the authority of scripture, as if somehow bringing kind of context into the conversation pits it somehow against the authority of scripture. I'd love to hear y'all maybe explain that a little bit more, bring some clarity in the way that we think about the way contextual realities relate to the scripture's authority. Yeah, I've got this. Yeah. Is this still on? Yeah, yeah it's on. Okay, all right. Um, I can appreciate the concern. I mean, even as you were saying, uh, you get, you know, you get the bad ones. But I would say at least um, a couple of things. One is, if you're reading the Bible, you're reading contextual theology. You know, Old Testament. They're using genre forms common to their time. They're using vocabulary common to their time. Even the temple is following the floor patterns of ancient temples. I mean, they are doing contextual theology. Uh, they can't do anything else. And some of the rich things that you find in the Bible are in times of crisis. So the exile and all the things that the exile will generate. 
you see, with the inspiration of the Lord. And to me, this is kind of that time. You see? But even if you read the text, it's a messy time. Because even as Jeremiah is wrestling with this and trying to understand why this is happening, one thing is knowing, you know, he knows it theologically, but now he has to explain it and actually live it. But there's other prophets with a different take. Well, of course they would be. So I think that's what we're living in now, for instance. It's a creative time, but it's a messy time. Now it happens, uh, if you come from a set tradition, you don't want the messiness. You want it to be a finished product. But even mentioning Melanthin, right? That was a messy experience with him. <laughs> this is the end product of a very messy and often very volatile theological discourse. Mm. But we just kind of look at this. Well, how did we get there? Christology. That took centuries. It was a messy time. And so I think what we need to begin to do is, is appreciate the messiness of it. But if you're committed to the church and to the truth, you keep going. And um, if we can recognize that what you're reading in the text is contextual theology, growing out of the experience, you can't understand New Testament or Old Testament except against their backgrounds. What are you doing? You're trying to contextualize the message of the ancient word. It's the same kind of thing. And here's the, the thing that, that people miss. The contextual part is not only what you do after you do the other. It actually informs how you do what you do. Because now it'll, it'll, it'll sensitize you to certain things. Mm -hmm. But you know, a lot of people who are more you know, set, this only can be after we do the things. And I'll say one last thing and I'll be done. I was in a in a meeting where I was being uh, questioned uh, by the head of an institution. And um, we were talking about Latin American evangelical theology. Here was the question. Listen, and you guys would appreciate this. Isn't there only one biblical theology? And I said, well, who gets to decide what that is? The Americans? Someone's making the decisions of what can be in and what can be out. The text should be making those decisions. But that's the challenge. So it means that we have to work twice as hard to get the street cred. We're not allowed to make mistakes. When all around us, people are making mistakes. <laughs> But because race and ethnicity and all the things that go with it are very volatile issues, when you make a mistake in this field, if you make a mistake in Christology, oh, you just buy another book. Anything you'd like to add? I can. No, you yeah. don't have to, but no, you're welcome to. No, I think, I think when we're reading the scriptures, um, realize that the goal of the Bible is that you do something with it. Uh, the goal of the Bible is, is not that you take the text, you read it, you understand the various principles, you know, draw from it the certain principles that it teaches, you know, what it tells us about God, what it tells us about Christ, and so on, and then go on with the rest of your life. 
but rather the Bible is, is designed, God speaks to the effect that we actually do something with his word. Uh, not just that we respond uh, uh, in conversion, you know, and, and placing our faith in Christ, but of course we as a great commission seminary, we understand that it's about us living life now under the lordship of Christ. Well, what does that mean? And what does that look like? Uh, what that looks like for me in Wake Forest in 2019 looks different than what it may look like for someone in Beijing in 2019. There are definitely some overlaps, you know, and, and so forth, but it's different. I'm not going to uh, do the same things necessarily because I'm a different person living in a different context with a different location. On top of that, there are things that someone in Beijing may gather from reading the scriptures and applying it to their lives that I could actually learn from. Uh, there may be some things that they recognize in the scriptures because of where they're situated that sheds light on things that I may have overlooked. And so that's why uh, we, we need not just to understand the, um, uh, uh, the uh, necessity of the scriptures uh, in uh, the scriptures applied, if you will, uh, to our own particular context, but why we need to read the scriptures and obey the scriptures and meditate on the scriptures in community so that we're able to uh, see the things that we wouldn't normally see uh, if we were doing this in a vacuum. Uh, all of uh, this and, and various other things are reasons for why, uh, uh, you know, as, as, as uh, Dr. Carroll said, that all of theology is uh, by nature contextual. Um, I appreciate what you said about the scriptures, uh, that the scriptures themselves are contextual. Uh, you read the Pentateuch, for instance. Um, you know, why in the world do we have this story about Adam and Eve sinning and getting kicked out of the garden and all of these different things? Does it have anything to say to a people who are wandering in a land, you know, uh, wandering in a wilderness, looking forward to entering a land? Uh, does uh, Adam and Eve disobeying, you know, uh, and getting kicked out as a result of their disobedience have anything to say with the people who received a covenant from God with the stipulations that if they disobey, they would be banished from the land? You know, I mean, why, why do we have these things? Could it be that, he's, uh, that, that the Pentateuch was written specifically for a people to show them the, over, uh, the overlaps that this story here of Adam and Eve is actually our story too? That the God who spoke to them is the God who speaks to us, and just what God did with them is what God does with us, and yet he's also a God of incredible mercy and grace, as we see in their story as well. Uh, all of that is a part of, uh, of, of what I believe that God has always been doing through, through the scriptures, uh, and it's, I think, uh, what he calls for us to do as well. I'm going to take a long time. <laughs> just want to quickly speak to uh, embracing context while still holding to the authority of, of Scripture. Just in light of our, our current, current climate, there's just one thing I don't understand uh, coming from my background is how tightly we draw boundaries. Um, just look on social media, who we consider in, who we consider out. I, I don't get that. I mean, I come from a Hispanic background. One of the things I appreciated most recently was being part of um, 
a Hispanic Theological Initiative meeting at Princeton. You had people from all kinds of different backgrounds. Uh, people who normally I probably wouldn't even talk to, but we're coming together uh, for the cause of, okay, how do we better train and equip uh, future Hispanic scholars? I think uh, being in this context, being in the context that we um, see on social media and how cantankerous it is, just thinking about something like en conjunto, how can some of those boundaries that aren't uh, primary issues, how, how can we think about putting those to a side while still holding to them and finding ways that we can constructively work together? I think one of the places you see that uh, is among Latin American communities, is among Hispanic scholars. So we're getting together and working with people who normally in a context like perhaps the one we're in here, we would not talk to, we wouldn't say a whole lot of positive things about, but we're coming together uh, en conjunto uh, for one for one common cause. So I think embrace, that's an example of how I think we can embrace something of the Hispanic culture and adopt it perhaps in our own. Yeah, just to revisit once again the um, authority of scripture with sort of contextual readings, um, or even just people looking at it from where they're called to faithfulness to Christ. You know, those are different sort of spaces. Um, the, the information that I'm going to bring to my understanding of the words on the page are informed by the way that those words are used in my own, you know, background. Um, you know, the uh, questions and concerns that I have are going to come from somewhere. Usually they're, they're the ones that are pressing on, you know, me the hardest. Um, and which, which is so important while we begin to bear each other's burdens. So our questions and our concerns, aren't, we know those aren't the only ones. Um, so we sort of fill that out. But all I'm saying is that we are sensitized, as Dr. Carroll said, to certain dynamics in the text. Because uh, there's, there's so much there that God is trying to communicate to us. After all, he's an infinite God talking to finite people. <laughs> And so I uh, really see that when I interact with uh, folks who are of completely different worldview or not, or just backgrounds who are Christians, um, it, it helps me. It, it helps fill out my understanding of what's going on in the Bible. For example, I read a, an account of this, but then I actually tested this out in um, in um, uh, in Tokyo. Is that you know, as I read the Prodigal Son, I always used to put the emphasis on the. Uh, the disposition of the older son when the younger son came back, you know, saying, okay, so we're the ones who've been faithful. This is the one who's been unfaithful. So why do you celebrate him and not me sort of a thing? Uh, and so don't, don't be jealous when people are celebrated coming to the kingdom when you've been there for a while. That, that's, that's sort of the, what I was given. But in that, in, that, in that environment with my brothers and sisters who are reading the Bible under Christ's lordship as well, trying to find out his meaning in it, but they were from an honor-shame background. We begin, to, I be, they, they, they opened my eyes to something that was fantastic. They said, well, the way I see it, as I'm trying to find the God who's revealing himself to us in scripture, as I was too, um, you have a younger son who dishonored his father by wishing he was dead with the activity or just, you know, with, of asking for his, you know, uh, his inheritance early. And then he lives dishonorably, yet the father, who's an honorable man, is waiting for him. And then when he sees him from afar, he picks up his tunic, which is dishonorable for a man of his, you know, stature and age. And he runs to someone who has dishonored him. And now the other son is mad that, now the father is shameful 
as opposed to the, the, his brother being shameful because his dad has been nothing but good. And so, and then when they told me that, I was like, oh my word, I never seen that. So that's, uh, Tim, I think Tim, Tim Tennant writes that in his book, but then I took it there to, uh, to, to, to uh, Tokyo to see if that, like, how that played. And they're like, yeah, that's how we read it. And, and I was just so blown away about how enriched I was. I mean, it's not an, this is not a polyvalent sort of, you know, uh, party that we were having, you know. This was, you know, us looking at God's word and really not making it simple by making it lower. We were raising it higher. So I think we, we try to protect the word of God from context and, its real, and the realities of people who are trying to be faithful to Christ from where they are. Uh, and so if we, let's just lift it higher. Its authority is, and its, uh, and its reach is pervasive enough and comprehensive enough for us to show Christ's lordship over all things. I was just going to add a, a quick word, if I might. Um, what can happen in contextual theologies is you'll get anger directed toward kind of the usual theology. And some of that anger directed that way is just frustration. Um, so you should expect pushback if, if you've never done this kind of stuff, because... African-Americans or Latinos or Asian-Americans or women get angry. Um, give them permission to be angry. But I think this is where your, our evangelical commitments come in because we will put all of those interpretations uh, at the word. And that's the thing that we all have to bow to. And if we can appreciate that as the body of Christ, I call it kind of body of Christ hermeneutic, if we can appreciate that everyone has something to say, but not everything they say is correct, <laughs> let's, let's take it to the word. This is why you need to be a good exegete, yeah. a good theologian, and an historical theologian. You see, you need all these things, yeah. and we need the systematic, you know, doing centuries-old theology. <laughs> you can speak into this. Well, you know, and then, and we all begin to contribute because we're trying to edify the body of Christ, which includes different cultures and genders. Uh, we don't silence women. We don't humiliate women. They have the right for an education and the right to speak. We don't humble in a bad way the African Americans or the Asians. No, we're coming to the table. And when I say the table, I mean the Lord's table. We all come as sinners with finite minds. And we're all going to share that same bread. And the bread is also that book. We need to have that kind of filter and have the courage to sit around that table. No, that's fantastic. This has been a lovely conversation. I wish we could keep going all afternoon, to be honest. But I, I'll say my, my kind of own personal encouragement in thinking through this, I feel like it's been great for me to be thinking through, you know, Ephesians 4 and what it means for us to grow up in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And I hope that this conversation helps us do that. Um, so thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. It's been a great joy to have you here today.